All right, well, good morning, good morning. Go ahead and if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm thankful to be back in, in 1 Peter with you guys. Some very, very important things we're going to consider this morning. Every morning we open the Word, it's important. This morning uh, I just found a, um, I don't know, just a, a, fresh, uh, a fresh renewal in my own mind um, with regard to just really essentially um, what our mindset should be every day as Christians. You know, there's a mindset we have to put on every day. And it's something that we can neglect if we're not careful. And we're going to look at what Peter has in mind here this morning. But um, very, very important text here for us. So let me read chapter 4, and we'll read 1 through 3. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that by your spirit you move these men like Peter, these apostolic foundational men, to record for us your words. Lord, really, in a sense, the whole of Scripture are red letters. And Lord, we look at them this morning afresh as you, our teacher, speaking to us through these men. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to take to heart these things. Um, these are the very oracles of God. These are these are things fresh from your mind. And so, Lord, help us to align our own thinking with them for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I don't have a ton of review. One of the things I want to call to mind, though, is how much Peter has been focusing on suffering. His letter, arguably, is written to the church about glorious realities in terms of who they are in Christ. They're a royal nation, a holy priesthood. They're, they're chosen of God. God has foreknown them. These wonderful, wonderful ideas. Um, but he does so to ground them in the reality that they live in a world of injustice. And they live in a world that, in many ways, is dead set to eradicate Christianity. And in the history of the world, you find softer or harder expressions of that. And at this time in Peter's writing, there are somewhat soft persecutions going on, things like slander, ostracism socially, those kinds of things. And throughout Rome, actually, it wasn't that way. It was more intense the closer you got to, um, to Rome. But outside in Asia here, where Peter is, is appealing to, I mean, there was still soft persecution going on. And as time would go on, depending on the emperor, the persecution ramped up even more and more to physical persecution, torture, those kinds of things. 
But God has given us the letter of 1 Peter so that as believers we will recognize that persecution is our lot in our life. It just is. And the suffering here that Peter is talking about is not a generic suffering, typically. He's not typically talking about natural disasters or the sickness we may all experience. He's talking about Christian suffering. He's talking about suffering in specific to us as believers because we follow Christ. That there will be pain in your life specifically because you follow Jesus. And in some ways, Peter is going to tell us that if that pain is not there, it's because you're not obeying Jesus. It's because you're not living for the will of God. You're living for your own lust. So it's very interesting the way Peter sets this up. Some of his language is striking. The one who suffered has ceased from sin? But it's important for us to pay attention to so that we truly grasp what Peter is on about with regard to suffering. As we begin chapter 4, verse 1, Peter, of course, starts with therefore. And because, of course, all of these sections are connected, but specifically here, Peter is tying us back to this previous section where Peter's been talking about this issue of suffering in the Christian life. If you look back at um, verse, let's see, 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is good or for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. So, and then he goes on to talk about God's Victory in Jesus Christ over the demonic realm is what I think is going on there. And then his, his subsequent exaltation to the right hand of God after the resurrection, where he now reigns over all demonic powers, both evil and good powers. And flowing from this reality that Christ has victory, but also Christians now suffer for doing what is good, Peter says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So he connects us back to this issue of suffering. He's still got suffering on his mind. He doesn't leave it very quickly. And like I said, he he first highlights Christ again as the one who suffers. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, he brings it up again. He wants you to think about that fact. He wants you to think about the master, the one that's your master, your Lord, is the one who took blows, is the one who took the beatings, is the one who took the mockings, is the one who took the betrayal, is the one who took crown of thorns. This is your master. This is the one you are aligned with. This is the one you side with. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. He uses the word Christ here. I mean, it's amazing. Messiah. We, we believe in a Messiah who suffers. You know, that was the big problem of the early disciples and, and really the whole Jewish nation. They had a very strong notion that the Messiah is a political figure that would reign and rule in an unchallenged way. Their category of a suffering Messiah was, a category of a suffering Messiah was sort of lost on them. But for us, we recognize that our Messiah, our Savior, our anointed King, was enthroned through the pathway of suffering. Therefore, since Christ, Messiah, anointed king, has suffered in the flesh, 
arm ourselves with the same purpose. Now this language here, suffered in the flesh, is striking. Ben was talking about the importance of the body this morning. And I think, again, we're, we're to remember this, that Jesus wasn't a phantom. Um, he wasn't someone who play-acted that he was in pain or something like that. He had nerve endings. He felt it. He felt it. The, the whole idea of suffering here is, it's the word pascal. It's where we get the idea of passion. It's, it's the idea that you, you are hurt physically, it affects you emotionally, it affects you to the bone. It affects you into your passions, your emotional realm. It's pain. No one can take spikes to their wrists and not feel it in their soul. He suffered. He suffered greatly. And this is our master. But Peter just doesn't have in mind here the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh. He has in mind an implication for us based on Messiah suffering in the flesh. And what is that? Well, it's that we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Whoa. (laughs) Wait a minute, what? Arm yourself with the same purpose? What What kind of appeal is that? It's not very appealing, is it? Arm yourself with the same purpose? Some things to think about with this phrase, arm yourself also with the same purpose. The idea of arming yourself is the idea of preparation. You think of soldiers, policemen, Get up in the morning, they got a job to do to uphold justice in society. So what do they do? They, they strap on a Glock. They put their belt on, they make sure they got bullets, they make sure the gun's clean. Perhaps they make sure they got a vest on. And then they're able to go out and do what they ought to do to uphold justice in this world. They're prepared. Imagine them going out without that and getting called into a, a situation, a volatile situation, where there's guns flying, you know, bullets flying and and, and just all kinds of hostility and, and violence, and they're not ready. Peter uses this imagery for us so of arming ourselves, of, 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 of weaponry. Really, fundamentally, he's talking about being prepared. Be prepared for what you are to engage in day to day. Be prepared. One of the things we want to realize here, and I, I hope that you truly grasp this, that there is a cause and effect relationship in the Christian life. That what you do matters, and what you don't do matters. What you do matters, what you neglect matters. What you fertilize will grow. What you don't fertilize will not grow. If you do not arm yourselves, you will not be armed. And that's fairly simple. But this is, a, this, is a, this is a term, this is an idea of active, focused intentionality. Arm yourself. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? Put on the whole armor of God. It's not a cute Sunday school verse. It's arming yourself. 
It's girding yourself. It's preparing yourself. It's the opposite of floating through the morning or the day. Right? It's focus. Arm yourself. Is this the way you think of your day? You wake up, what is it? You float, whatever comes will come. Are you recognizing the fact that the admonition here or the instruction here, the command here, is arm yourself? Be prepared. It matters. Are you preparing your mind mentally every day in this following of Jesus? The term here for arm is the same term used for the weapons the soldiers had that captured Jesus. So again, we're talking about warfare. Peter has this in mind, I think. I think he has this in mind. I think he has this idea that you or I, you and I, are actually in a war that legitimately is life and death. Do you believe that? You, you are. Why arm yourself? Well, because the stakes are pretty high, both for you and for your brethren and for the world that's perishing out there. The stakes are high. After all, Peter says earlier in chapter 2 that there are these fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Well, what are you supposed to do? You're to war against them, right? You can't, just, you can't just let sin run roughshod over you. Who are you after all? You're born again. You're, the child, you're a child of the living God. There's a war. There's, there's an adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Do you believe that? If you do, then you'll arm yourself. And we'll talk about in a second what arming yourself, arm yourself with what exactly, but to, to recognize that you are to wake up in the morning and perhaps throughout your day continuing to be prepared, continuing to be intentional with what is in your mind. And um, arm yourself also with the same Purpose. And this is why I say mind. The NAS, I don't know why they translated it purpose. I mean, I kind of do, but I wish they would have just left it. The word is mind. I think the ASV has it right. Arm yourself also with the same mind. And he uses, before we get to mind, just he's talking to all believers. He, he uses the, the plural, yourselves. This is something that we're all to be arming ourselves as everybody in the body of Christ has this obligation. Whether you're seven years old and you just became a Christian or whether you're 97 years old, you know, this is for all of us. This isn't just for elders. This isn't for the radical Christian. This is for normal Christians to arm ourselves. But arm ourselves with what? Well, with the same mind. With the same mind points to it. He points to the mind. It means mindset. It means consideration. What kind of mind are we talking about? Well, the mind of Jesus Christ. The mind that the mind of Jesus Christ that when suffering was his prospect, he walked in it to obey God. That's the mind. The mindset that obeying my father is worth more than my own 
life. That's the mindset. The mindset is the will of God is more valuable to me than my comforts in this life. They're more value, it's more valuable even than relationships. This mind. This is the mind that you as believers are to put on every day. It's this mind. It's the mind that the mission of following Jesus and living for the will of God can often mean suffering. This is the mind that we are to put on. This is the mind that you're to prepare yourself. Wake up in the morning and you think obeying Jesus today could get me into some uncomfortable situations. That's what Peter's saying. Arm yourself with that. Wives, arm yourself with that. Husbands, arm yourself with that. Kids, arm yourself with that. Today, following Jesus could cost me. It's interesting how Peter does not say, arm yourself with the mind to obey the Lord. He doesn't say that. Even though it's absolutely implied. He rather says, arm yourself with the mind to suffer. That's what he points out. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind. Because he who has suffered in the flesh is he's from sin. He's talking about suffering. He's not firstly talking about obeying God. He's talking about suffering for God. Oh, get your mind girded up with that thought, is Peter's point. Now that's interesting. Very interesting. Why is it interesting? Because the reality is that you cannot follow Jesus faithfully or truly in this world of sin and not suffer. That's his point. Why? To give us a reality check. To get us to a fresh... Here's Peter. I want you to freshly count the cost. That's what he's saying. Count the cost. Again. Do it again. Count the cost. Reflect on. Is he worth it? Reflect on the mission. Reflect on the will of God. Is he worth obeying? This is what Peter's doing for us. It's a call to recognize that to follow Jesus is to die. Isn't it? Isn't it? In some instances, you cannot actually obey the Lord without suffering for it. Right? You think of the husband that wants to lead his family. His wife, disgruntled, can't stand that church. He's got to make a choice. He knows that's where they belong. He knows that's where he belongs. He knows the teaching's good. He knows the fellowship is sweet. He knows that that's where he's grown. That's where he's seen things. She's, she can't stand it. What does he do? Oh, he's got to be the head, doesn't he? He can't relinquish that. That's not an option. So what does he do? Well, he's not a bull. He dwells with his wife in an understanding way. He's gentle with her. But he's also dead set that I've got to obey God rather than you. And he does it. And what happens? Well, it brings some pain. I've seen this time and time again, time and time again, time and time again. 
Men capitulate to the woman that is disgruntled and discontent, and they've relinquished their role to be the head, and they've let the woman dictate where they're going to go because the man doesn't want to suffer. And it will bring suffering. The woman who has the, the husband that, frankly, he's dropping the ball left and right. Perhaps he's not even a Christian. Perhaps he makes all kind of bad decisions. And therefore she thinks, I'm not going to submit to that guy. No way. Look at all these bad decisions he makes. But then she recognizes, she reads Peter and she's like, oh, wait, I'm to arm myself with the reality that it means to suffer. To follow Jesus Christ in submission to my husband, even my unbelieving husband, even my husband that's not respectable, it means to suffer. Now, I'm not saying that she submits to him when he wants her to sin or that kind of thing. You know that. But what I am saying is that submitting to a man who's not respectable and having to deal with all the bad decisions his husband's made, maybe he's driving him into the ground financially. Whatever it is, she's going to have to live with that. But she recognizes that following Jesus to respectably submit to her husband, again, doesn't mean she can't talk to him, doesn't mean she can't bring up the issues. But at the end of the day, as Peter says, she wins him. She knows I can win him without a word. I I trust my soul to God. I live for him. And I recognize that this could mean suffering. And the reality is she doesn't have an option. Her option is certainly not there to retaliate against her husband. To let him have it. To get, you know, her girl posse. Right? Oh, kick that guy to the curb. Those kinds of things. That's wicked. Now again, all these situations are case by case. If he's an adulterer, we're talking about a different scenario. But my point is, and I've got this later on my notes, I'm probably going to come back to it, but it's just fresh on my mind here. So many marriages would be helped so greatly if they would recognize that my first agenda for the day is to follow Jesus. Not to hope in a good marriage. Not to hope in a great spouse. Not to have your expectations this high for your spouse. And if he doesn't meet him or she doesn't meet him, then all of a sudden you have the right to sin. You must recognize in the path to following Jesus that it will mean suffering for doing what is right. And I bring up husbands and wives because Peter just talked about it in the chapter before. Because life is really not about our great marriages. It's not, it's, it's, it's really about following Jesus. That is so Sunday school, isn't it? But it really is that. What does Jesus say to me as a husband? What does Jesus say to me as a wife? And then you entrust your soul to him and let him deal with the chips as they fall. All of the, well, he does this and she does that and can you believe and all this stuff would all be in some ways checked when you realize, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to take what he said seriously. Scripture says, submit to my husband. That's going to be hard. But he means it. And it's a powerful weapon. Self-denial and love is a powerful weapon, isn't it? For wives, a powerful weapon is not this. That's not a powerful weapon. You think it's a powerful weapon, but it's not. A powerful weapon is that you've said your piece, 
And then you live selflessly in self-denial with this ridiculous guy. Now again, case by case, I know all that. But by and large. And then what happens is, because husbands are very visual, they see it. It's a powerful weapon. Many stories throughout church history of men coming around when their wife yet again does not retaliate to their ridiculousness. There was a story a guy was telling me the other day of this man that continued to persecute his wife, at least verbally, and mistreat her, and she would just make him cookies, and ultimately he broke. He was very, very forceful with her one day, not physically, but just, just not, just, just very rude. And she went to the Lord, she prayed. She's like, I'll make him cookies. She made him cookies, and he just fell apart. Love is a powerful weapon. But ultimately, that may not happen. And that's my point. You can't just do it, though, because one day it's going to totally fix my marriage. Now, you can certainly want that. That is not wrong to want, not wrong to pray for. But ultimately, that can't be your fundamental motivation. Your fundamental motivation is to follow your Lord in what he says. Same thing with men. It's the same thing with men. You are there to love your wife you are there to understand her. You are there to be gentle with her, right? We've talked about that. She's, she's the fine china God has given you. And when she is absolutely being rebellious and contentious and these kinds of things, you've got to make a choice. You can make a choice to retaliate. You can make a choice to stonewall. You can make a choice to get hard. Or you can make a choice to be the head of your home. And it could raise all manner of conflict in the short term. And how you respond is important. But ultimately, you're not doing it to shame her. You're doing it to follow Jesus. That's why you're doing it. And you let him deal with it. And she may not like your choices. Like I said, back to the situation with the, the, the woman that doesn't want to come back to that particular church. You say, look, I, you know, honey, I, I understand that. But this is where the Lord wants us. And that's what we're doing. And you know what will happen? It will have a winning effect. She'll either break and repent and crumble or she'll jet. And that's not what you want. But that's actually what will happen. Ultimately, you follow Jesus. And it will mean you suffer. It really will. This call here from Peter is a call to freshly count the cost. It's a call to recognize that to follow Jesus is to lay down your life. Paul says, I die daily. Paul tells us, be a living sacrifice. Jesus says, count the cost. It will cost you everything. And brethren, I just want to ask, do you remember that? Some of those passages early on, perhaps, that were fresh in your mind, do you remember that? Do you remember, wait, that, yeah, that, That's who I'm supposed to be every day. That's what I'm supposed to be thinking every day. He's worth it. I deny myself. I'm not my own. This is it. Christ is life. Peter's here telling us, reaffirm your commitment to Jesus. So my appeal to you, brethren, is to arm yourself with the normal Christian life 
of following Jesus, which means taking up a cross. And it's a mental thing. It's a mental thing. That's where the battle is waged. Take up the same mind that was in Jesus. This, the mind is the place where the preparation happens. The mind, is, is, it, it absorbs what we put before it, right? The eyes are the windows of the soul, people say. It's, it's what we take in. It's what we read. It's what we listen to. It's what we watch. But it's, what we, it's what's before it is, is what ends up becoming the content of our minds and how we think. That's why the scriptures continue to point to the renewing of our mind over and over and over and over. If our minds are flooded with truth and the gospel, spiritual songs, we'll be better prepared for this war. If they're filled with all manner of things where God is absent, then we will become worldly. It's why somebody that only always listens to just secular music, it affects you. I mean, if that's all you ever listen to is just music where God is nowhere to be found, don't think it's not going to affect you. It's totally going to affect you. 100% going to affect you. What you think matters. And, and here, the particular truth about which we must think intently is the reality that suffering comes to those who live for Christ. We should settle this in our mind and be careful what we give our minds to. If our mind is full of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, then you will not be armed or you will not and you will get taken out. You will not last. You will fade away. I promise you that. You will not last. Jesus says, count the cost before you start coming. That's what he says. You won't make it. You'll build your wall halfway and then you won't make it. People look back over your life and you're like, wow, that's a half, that's a half built wall. If your head is just full of just all the extracurricular of the world, if it's just full of sports or fashion or prestige in the eyes of men or even your own physical image or even political conservative stuff and not the gospel and not the truth of scripture, you will not be prepared. You won't be. Sure, I mean, in some measure, we read things and listen to things that aren't in the scriptures, things we can enjoy in measure as a garnish to your life, sports, right? vacation. It's not wrong to understand what's going on in the world. Those kinds of things. But, but the question is, do you take in these things in a way that replaces or diminishes a sense of your mission? What takes the lion's share of your thinking? Because Peter here says you must have the same mind that was in Jesus. Frankly, that takes work. 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 Work is not legalism in the Christian life. If you're relying on them for your justification, it is. But if you don't understand that God is not going to obey for you, then you will drift. I think I said that right. hope I said that right. Sometimes my negatives can go the wrong way. Anyway. 
And someone might say, well, gosh, do I really have to think this every day? I really have to have that focus and intentionality every day? Well, listen to Jesus. And he was saying to them all, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily. Daily cross. That's our lives. That's what it is. Daily we die to our rights. Daily we die to the injustices that are done big or little to us. Daily. We recognize our mission. We recognize our Lord. Jesus says daily you must consciously take up the cross. You must consciously take up the instrument of death to your will and submit it to God's daily. Every day is not about you. It's about your death. That Christ might display his perfect power. Arm yourself. Arm yourself. Deny yourself. And oftentimes this brings pain. I've had times where I've had to talk about his parenting that could have cost me a good relationship with him. But it was necessary for his good and the peace of our street and to honor the Lord and to admonish in love. I didn't want to do it. Nobody wants to do that. Especially the parenting piece, right? That's a hotbed of an issue. But you know, things can get to a point where if you don't say something, you're in wrong. And you're not helping him. You recognize whatever the outcome is, it is. You know, these things must be said. Peter declares an amazing fact, though, as we think about this reality of the inevitable suffering of the Christian, the faithful Christian. He declares an amazing fact, and, he, and built into this is an incentive to live a life resigned to obey God no matter the cost. So he declares this fact and built in is this incentive. Listen to what he says. Why, Peter? Why, why should we arm ourselves with the same mind? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Wow. That's a statement. How many of y'all want to be free from sin? Cease from sin? Yeah, me too. Peter says, I'll show you how. That's what he says. Now that's striking language. Ceased from sin? Oh, Peter. You know, another dumb statement that you make. You carry it on into your epistles. Is Peter talking about sinless perfection? No. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about a decisive break with it. 
Now, before I dig too much deeper into this, some folks think that the text is pointing to Christ here, that because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that's Jesus. That he suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin, in that he put away sin once for all in his death. But this cannot be what Peter is saying because the one who suffers in the flesh here in this verse is not just the one who has ceased from sin, but it's the one who go, he goes on to say is the one who now does not live for the lusts of men any longer and obeys the will of God. Plus, I mean, are we really going to say that that's Jesus? <laughs> that, he, that he, at some time, he stopped living for the lusts of men? Of course not. He never sinned. He was sinless through and through. So this is talking about you and me. This is talking about Christians. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now again, this is patterned after and somehow connected to Jesus, no question about it. Listen to the language. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, he was suffered in the flesh and ceased from sin. So you see those connections? Jesus suffered in the flesh, you're going to suffer in the flesh. There is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. What is going on here? Paul says some pretty staggering things in Philippians 3 about this. I don't have time to read it all. Go back and read Philippians 3, 8 through 16. And suffice it to say this, Paul wants to know Jesus so much, not only in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his, say it, suffering. Why? Because Paul's a masochist? No, but because I know Jesus more in those moments, in that season. I know Jesus more there. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Because it's all predicated on to know him. Power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings. To know him. See, there's a, there's a knowledge of Christ that comes through pain. It just does. He will know Christ more deeply. So if Christ suffers in the flesh, we'll suffer in the flesh. But what does this mean that the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Well, I, I think it means this, that those who have taken up the mission of Jesus and, and those who live for, the will, for obeying the will of God and suffer for it are done with sin. I think that's what it means. That no longer characterizes their life. I'll say it again. Those who have taken up the mission of following Jesus, living to obey the will of God and suffer for it, are done with sin. That is, they have made a decisive break with sin. And it's exactly what Peter says right after that. If you look back at the text, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. It's so clear. That's, what, that's exactly what he's saying. What does it mean that you cease from sin? It means as long as you live, you're not living for the dictates of your own lust, but you're living to obey God. That's what it means. Peter's saying this, find me someone who is entrenched in sin, and you will find me someone who is not committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Find me someone who gives in to the lusts of the flesh in an ongoing manner 
Could be lust of the flesh, sexually, anger, anxiety, worry, these kinds of things. Lust. Find me someone who is, 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 is given way to lust and these kinds of things. And you will find me someone who is not pursuing the mission of Jesus. Whereas in the earlier verses here, suffering was predicated upon Christ's example, that is, we suffer because he suffered, here Peter says suffering is also a means of breaking with sin. And, and, and there's an incentive in that, isn't there, brethren? There's an incentive in that. Don't you want to be free from sin? <laughs> Living for Christ means not getting drugged into the gutter of the filth of sin. They're mutually exclusive pathways. Again, Peter isn't talking about sinless perfection, but as it pertains to your life, it'll be clear that sin does not characterize you because you're so connected with the things of the Lord. You're so concerned with the things of the Lord, how to love him, how to love your spouse well, how to train your children, how to love the brethren, how to have a secret prayer life, how to make the gospel known to your coworkers or your neighbors, how to live for Jesus. That will be your fixation. Right? Not sports stats. Not this hobby or that. Not saying all hobbies are wrong. Not saying all sports are wrong. I'm just saying you're, what you fixated on. It's one thing to have a garnish in your life that can be a nice diversion from time to time. It's another thing when that becomes the main thing you live for. That's what happens, isn't it? Then Christianity becomes the garnish. The gospel becomes the garnish. Reading the word becomes the garnish. It becomes the little side note to your life. Yeah, well that, you know what that'll do. You'll become worldly. You will. Because why? Because that's what they love. That's what they're concerned about. Right? They're worried about making the pedestal, right? They're worried about or the podium. They're, they're, worried about, they're worried about putting their kids' names in lights because he's got the scholarship to this incredible university. And that's all they want to talk about. They, they care about the vainglory of life. Oh, but we don't, I mean, we know all that's sinking sand. I mean, I'm happy if your son's smart and he's done well. But I'd be way more happy if my son was working a blue-collar trade and faithful to Jesus. Perish at a young age, even. Rather than having the successful man who, who achieves the American dream. The reality is Brethren, that you can't live in the two worlds. You can't. You can't serve two masters. Your heart can't do that. It will either serve the one and hate the other, hate the one and love the other. I mean, it really will. And this is a check on us. But what an incentive embedded in this. What an incentive. These things should take up our concern. And when they do, sin has far less opportunity to take you prisoner. 
Now, what do we mean when we talk about suffering? So I think, you know, we all see this and we're like, we think of the guy who's getting burned at the stake, right? Well, that's part of it. I mean, that's happened in church history. Worse things, too, have happened in church history. You only have to read, if you, if you go back and you read Martyr's Mirror, I can lead that to you to read. Some of the stuff is hard to read. I've had to read some stuff and it makes me nauseous, frankly. I've had to close it and put it down for another day. Christians have suffered greatly for Jesus Christ. But I don't think that that's the only suffering Peter's talking about. Suffering can take many forms. I've already alluded to some of it in my, some of my examples with husbands and wives. In this letter, Peter speaks of slander and malice and having to deal with that. That's not easy to deal with. People don't like you, and you know they don't. That's not easy to deal with, especially if it's totally unfounded. That's not fun. But we must understand suffering can be a spectrum of experiences. And, and we also have to understand that Peter isn't so much holding out a second-tier Christianity per se either. He's not saying that, that, that this is the path of the super-Christian, even though there's all these carnal Christians. He's not holding that up either. He's recalibrating us to remember what we're, what we're to be about as believers, the normal Christian. One commentator said it well on this point. He says this, we must be careful not to make this into some kind of uniform second experience, which all mature believers must experience in the same way. Rather, Peter is speaking of something which may happen many or few times in a Christian's life and with many different degrees of intensity. For Christians living under hostile governments, for instance, the suffering endured may be great indeed. For those living elsewhere, something related to such suffering in the flesh may be seen as less intense, but it could be physical and emotional weariness or other discomfort which one endures in order to be obedient to God's will. You know, there are times when I've been, you know, just in, in shepherding, I've got to put aside time with my family or any personal time I get to tell people, a couple could be a single person, about their situation. And I need to tell them the truth about it. And it might mean that they don't like what I say and that they might misinterpret me or they could slander me or they don't like me or they want to leave the church because of it. I have to count the cost on all that. It's, it's um, you know, it's sometimes not fun. It's funny, when we were going door to door the other day and Abigail was with me, there were times when people would shut the door in our face and, and you know, you got to count the cost for that. I think Abby was just kind of like, oh, wow, okay, he just shut the door in your face. But that's part of it. I would have, before I was a Christian, I would have shut the door in my face or mocked me. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I want to bring home a couple application points on this. If you suffer as a Christian, you know, one thing that just dawned on me is suffering can go on for a long time too. You know, let's say you have unbelieving family members that 
don't particularly care for you and the stances you've taken on certain things because you're a Christian, that ostracism and separation can happen for years. Some of you have had to deal with that for years. That's not, that's hard. But just because you suffer doesn't mean God, it, it does not mean that God is against you or you're doing it wrong. If it's for the gospel, for righteousness, Peter would say not only are you doing it right, but you're actually blessed. The world would look at you as not very blessed, but from God's perspective, oh, that's the blessed life. In this world, that is the blessed life because that's the only true path of life. Secondly, knowing that you will suffer as a Christian eliminates all excuses, as excuses for disobedience. Track with me here for a second. Track with me here. What do I mean? Oftentimes we don't open our mouths in evangelism or put ourselves aside for the sake of others because of what it will cost us. We don't. We don't like that. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want the strange look. We don't want our kids mad at us, so we keep our mouths shut. It's uncomfortable. I've heard some parents say, we don't want to take that particular item away from our, from our child because they'll hate us. Brethren, the will of God as parents is to train our children. Teach them what things are harmful for them, things that are good for them. They'll not love everything you counsel or do for them, but this must not be our main concern. Our main concern is to tell them the truth, to love them, but to tell them the truth. I mean, you guys know the story about Eli, right? You know, Old Testament priest, had a couple sons, they were priests. I mean, listen to this text. 1 Samuel 3, I have told him, God, this is God speaking about Eli, I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Here's God holding this priest accountable for something he did not do as a father. He didn't rebuke his boys when they were in sin. Mm. It's uncomfortable, isn't it, parents? Take a hard line for the good of your children, even though they certainly won't think that. But you know what? Whether they love you or not is not your fundamental concern. What your fundamental concern is is obeying the Lord, making sure the truth is spoken. Because ultimately that's what's best for them anyway. We must tell them. We have responsibility to point this out. Many parents choose to just neglect this either because they're too tired or they think their kids will hate them. I.e., you don't want to suffer. (laughs) And I get that. We all have to fight against it. Especially when some days it just feels like the waves are coming in every two seconds. It's hard. And the Lord knows that. And that's the gracious thing about the Lord. He's patient with us. He knows that our frame is but dust. He knows we're needy, dependent creatures. He knows all that. He's not looking for you to be super dad, super mom, but he's looking for you to really get serious about wanting to obey him in this on a consistent level. I'm just throwing out examples. Husbands, wives, parents, 
Because it's not just the missionary. I'm not just talking about the missionary. I'm not just talking about going door to door. I'm talking about in your house. You have to choose to suffer sometimes to obey the Lord. You do. But in my experience with regard to parenting, consistent discipline actually builds respect in your children for you. But if you enable and don't address sin in your, under your roof, there will be no respect and the child will grow up resenting you. This happens. Fathers especially must take this to heart. God's going to come knocking on your door for this. Do you train your children up in the way they should go? Do you do it? Are you consciously doing it? You might have got down the uh, I'm going to guard my house physically thing. But what about guarding your house spiritually? This leads me to one of my other points of application here. I debated on bringing this up. Maybe it's worth it. Hopefully it is. If you're going to suffer, make sure it's for the right thing. Right? If you're going to suffer, make sure it's for the right thing. There are many voices in our American society that are bemoaning the state of our country. You think of these protest-type songs that, that are taking the billboards like, like Storm. Right? Jason Aldean's song. Oliver Anthony's song. These songs that push back against a duplicitous media and corrupt government. Their concerns are real. We should be grieved at riots in the streets, looting businesses, being overtaxed perhaps. But ultimately, while these, these songs and these sentiments ring true with many morally conscious Americans, these songs are not Christian anthems. I hope you all know that. I assume you know that. But I, I can only assume so much. But I assume that the bandwagons of, of getting all keyed up about a corrupt government and what you're going to do or not do about it is not your M.O. I, I hope that's not your M.O. God tests you in these things, doesn't he? He tests you there. We must not take up the rhetoric and the venom against the wicked in society and forget that our war is not a declining American nation. Our war is not hyperinflation. Our war is not against leftist liberals. They might be agents at some level of the dragon to target the church. True. But is our war to make them conservative? Is that what we're really concerned about? Is that what we're really after? Well, perhaps it'd be nice. Some of them would get some common sense. But our war is the same war Jesus died to win. It's the war for the souls of men. It's the war against the principalities and powers and the war against sin both of which seek to work our eternal destruction. 
It's the war to hold to God's truth and the gospel for the purity of the church and the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. This is our war. This is our mission. And realizing that our war and our mission to see Christ gain the reward of his suffering will mean we suffer. And for us to be faithful husbands and fathers and wives and moms and obeying the will of God no matter the cost is our mission. This is how we maintain faithfulness to the Lord. We should not be surprised at greed and hypocrisy of men and governments. We must not fret over these things. These songs that in some ways are, are moving. You know, I, I listened to that guy, Oliver Anthony's song, and my heart broke. Not because I think all of his stuff is true, but because he cries out, doesn't he? He's a broken man. He needs Jesus Christ. I was just telling Pedro, I was like, oh, if this guy would just get a hold of the gospel. If he would just let it all go and he would see, oh, the wicked have their end. But you're not righteous. You could be wicked. You've got the wrong enemies, the wrong allies. Be careful about the, 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 the righteous and the wicked rhetoric out there. The righteous are conservatives. The wicked are the left. This is not true. There are many enemies of God that are conservative. They use the rhetoric of to the promised land, which is sort of a utopia America. That is not a Christian mindset. I hope you all know it. Do not be deceived. Our focus must stay on eternal matters that keep us praying, speaking the truth to these same hypocrites and greedy people. The hope of the gospel of Jesus. And even though some of these may be your enemies, they're no less candidates for the gospel. And if not, God will deal with them ultimately. And it's important to remember that you once were an enemy of God weren't you? So we're no, no better than, we're no better than Antifa. We're no better than Black Lives Matter, are we? We're not. We're not superior, superior than, to them in and of ourselves. We're no better than a neo-Marxist. We can be grieved and even angered at their actions. Sad. It's frustrating. But not because we're morally superior. What I'm saying, brethren, ultimately is keep your heart on eternal matters and the will of God. Keep your mind fixed on Jesus and the mission. That's the only kingdom worth giving up all for. It's the only one. I'll stop there. I'll stop there. So just think about these things, brethren. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin you know maybe 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 today you just want to just sort of recommit you know you just want to say I'm all in again I'm all in you know 
Maybe you just need to say that. Maybe you need to repent. Remember, you know, remember what Jesus came to the layout of CNC said? He said, you guys have drifted so far. You, you say you don't need anything. I'm going to knock. I'm knocking at the door. And if you open, you can come, I'll come into you and we'll eat together. That's a gracious Savior. What is that? That's repentance. That's a, sort of this recommitment. That's a re, restoring of fellowship there. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe that's what you need to do. So why don't we pray and... Um, you know, and all these things, I'm, I'm preaching to myself, guys, 100%. We're all below the word, aren't we? So let's pray the Lord do this in all of us. Lord, what a word. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, no longer to live for the lusts of the flesh, but for the will of God. Lord, we know that it's not about the the life of being free from conflict, far be it, Lord. It, it actually means, could mean conflict tomorrow. But Lord, help us to not be afraid of any of that. Help us to fear you. Lord, please work in us these things. Work in all my brethren here these things. That we might be faithful to you. That we might be a church not characterized by sin, but a church that's characterized by obeying Jesus. Husbands loving spouses, wives, wives loving and submitting to husbands, fathers training children, workers being faithful in the workplace, making the most out of every opportunity to speak of Christ. These kinds of things, Lord, this is what you ask. You're not asking us to go all climb Mount Everest. You're asking us to be faithful where we are every day with what you've said. That's what you're asking. And the beautiful thing is, Lord, we know you give us grace to do it. You've promised us grace to do it. You've precious and magnificent promises by which we partake of the divine nature. So help us to remember these precious promises. Help us to remember you so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. Be with all my brethren, Lord. Be with the marriages that perhaps have, are just rocky. Lord, strengthen them. Help them to have fresh resolve, fresh love for you, fresh hope. Oh, that you can do all things. That 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 people that are committed to following you, gosh, there's great prospects for their marriage. There's great prospects for their friendship. Lord, you can do so many things. You can restore what the locusts have eaten. You can build all that back. Lord, what hope we have in you. You're our only hope. And so, Lord, we just, uh, we just thank you again just for this morning. Thank you for these scriptures. Burn it into our minds, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.